Hi, this is Paul Siegel. You're listening to Wandering DMs. Wandering DMs is broadcast live every Sunday at 1 p.m. Eastern on twitch.tv slash wanderingdms and youtube.com slash wanderingdms slash live. And now, on with the show. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Wandering DMs. I'm Paul. And I'm Dan. And on today on Wandering DMs, we're going to be talking about the second edition of the award-winning Fiasco Storytelling RPG, which took it from an indie game to a fancy box set with no dice. Uh, so we're going to be talking about how does that work as a model for evolving other games and a whole bunch of other stuff. Awesome. Awesome. So this is... Uh... Uh, I'm going to take the reins here. We're a little unusual, Dan. I think you, you usually uh, give us a lot more intro. What? I'm going to take the reins here because this was <laughs> kind of my idea that I pitched to you. Um, How dare you, sir? Yeah. <laughs> so just just so <laughs> folks know, I mean, Fiasco is a game that's been around for a long time. It's a story-based, it's a storytelling game. Uh, it's intended to be kind of run in one-shots uh, with no GM. And um, frankly, the, the, the reason it's it's really landed well for me uh, I, I really enjoy playing it. It fits a nice niche. One thing I've noticed about it is I have a friend who runs Fiasco um, all the time at game conventions when I go to like live in-person conventions. And it's her favorite game. She runs it all the time. And the one thing I'll say is universally, you always can tell in a big convention room full of tables of games which one's playing Fiasco because they are loud. Right? It is. Uh, there is a lot of laughter, a lot of big, you know, exciting dramatic moments it is definitely uh, a hard-hitting game i would say in terms of like humor and and just fun of um you know engaging everybody at the table and, and getting them getting them really having a good time so i uh, definitely recommend it it's a great game that's great i um uh you know when i was re- when i was reminding myself what fiasco was about i came across a review in wired uh, magazine at one point, which was very, very uh, positive. Uh, but it said, if you want very traditional RPG mechanics, Fiasco is going to be a poor fit. And of course, um, which which sounds like that's speaking to me, because uh, I am a fan <laughs> of traditional RPG mechanics. Um, but uh, we, we played it uh, on live on air, actually. And uh, there's a link in the YouTube description here to our season two, episode 50. It was our, it was our last episode of season two, actually. And uh, folks can see us playing it. I had a blast personally. Um, yeah. I, th- I think maybe I have a, a pretty flexible appetite for for games, particularly for one shots. Right. I think I can almost I can deal with almost any. I can enjoy almost anything when it's on a one shot basis. And I personally, yeah. Yeah. even though I'm not a big storytelling uh, game proselytizer, I enjoyed it a lot. Yeah, it, it fits a really nice niche. Um, I ended up playing it just uh, last uh, Friday night. Uh, with a small group, uh, a group that was actually we were intending to uh, do a session zero of a new campaign we were going to get rolling, and uh, some folks couldn't make it, and we were like, should we still get together? It's a smaller group, and we thought, well, let's just get together just to have some fun, and uh, we ended up playing Fiasco. So, um, this that's I think that's sort of what keyed me into the idea of uh, doing it for this show. So let's just um, let's just review a little bit more of the history of Fiasco. So I have here uh, the original book. Uh, uh, original is a stretch here because when I look at the flyleaf, it tells me that it is copyright 2009, and this copy that I'm holding in my hands 
is uh, ninth printing October 2014. So clearly a game that did pretty well if it made nine printings over the course of five years. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you know. Um, nice. And uh, yeah, yeah, so it was just, it was a solid book. Good, good, you know, kind of little trade size book, about 130 pages. Um, you know, re I would say there's some very nice, pleasant formatting in here, but reasonably dense text. Which I like. And, and a lot of, yeah, yeah, a lot of it is taken up with these big tables, uh, a, lot of, a lot of big tables in there, uh, which is a core part of the mechanic of the game. Um, maybe should I go over the mechanics, Dan? Does that remind us that what the intro? theme is? Yeah, yeah. so in what the theme is again. It's, it's really interesting. Thematically, uh, Fiasco sets out. Um, I'll just read the back of the book here for you. It says Fiasco is a game inspired Oof. by films like Blood Simple, Fargo, and A Simple Plan. During a session, you and your friends will engineer and play out a stupid, disastrous situations that exist at the darkly comic intersection of greed, fear, and lust. It's like making your own Coen Brothers movie in about the same amount of time it'd take to watch one. So there you go. Great. So it's, it was you know, kind of uh, like this. Yeah. I, I, you oh. know, coincidentally, uh, just last week, uh, it's funny it, It's funny they mentioned Fargo and other Coen Brothers movies because just last week I watched Burn After Reading, which is another mm -hmm. Coen Brothers uh, heist gone wrong starring uh, Francis McDormand, and I, which, which I enjoyed quite a bit. So I'm, I'm down with that. Excellent. Excellent. Yeah. Uh, his tagline here in the back of the book is a game of powerful ambition and poor impulse control, which I think is a great, a great line. Um, you know, the, the interesting thing about Fiasco is even though that theme seems very specific, uh, the settings can really vary. Like you can play those themes in, um, you know, modern day espionage setting or, you know, slice of life suburbia or uh, high fantasy, you know, with dwarves and elves and wizards. Like, you can still do that, right? It's just, yeah. you know, thematically. Uh, I, I, I was talking to somebody about, uh, about the themes of the game, and we were looking at... So one of the things it does is it presents sort of these core mechanics, and then it offers what it calls playsets. And playsets are uh, sort of like the scenario, if you will. But again, it's, it's a game uh, largely of improv, so you make up a lot. But the, um, the playsets offer sort of a setting and a kicking-off point and then a bunch of tables that are thematically appropriate to that setting. And one of the ones I have is that high fantasy, like almost D&D sounding kind of setting. Okay. And somebody said to me, it's kind of like role-playing um, The Hobbit after they kill Smaug. Right? <laughs> so that like, right, Great. that moment Great. when Great. it all falls to pieces, they've killed Smaug, it all starts Great. to fall pieces, they're bickering, and a big war is coming. <laughs> like, yep, yep, that's perfect. I can see that. I can see it. I mean, it also feels, it feels very, I mean, honestly, I actually hadn't thought about uh, playing it in a fantasy medieval setting, but it feels very Fafford and the Grey Mouser, which to me is the most classic D&D of all. Um, yeah, it would work really well use. for a Fafford and Grey Mouser. Right. You would, I mean, it would work well for a Fafford and Grey Mouser story if at the end your expectation was that Fafford and the Grey Mouser end up either dead or in jail. Because it, it generally uh, fiasco games end poorly for the main characters, generally. Yeah, got it. Got it. <laughs> I mean, they're usually they're usually broke. They're usually at least broke, if not lost limbs, uh, right. at the end of a <laughs> and one of their standard stories. <laughs> and probably so, everyone they know is dead too. Now that I think about it. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> so mechanically, mechanically the way the game is a lot of just setting up scenes and storytelling and, and play acting and role playing and whatnot, um, and, and very few mechanics, very little dice rolling. But there is a big pool of dice that's used collectively by the table to introduce random elements to the game, and they come off of these big tables. And they have things like locations and objects and needs um, that, that you kind of feed into the game in the initial setup. And then halfway through the game, they have a thing called the tilt, where you introduce some more random elements. So you get a little randomness injected into your game. And then there's a, a, a kind of a denouement section at the end, which also has a little more randomness rolled in. Um, so the new version came out last May. And it is this let me, before set. we get to the new. Let me let me ask one thing. The 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 yeah. um the various scenarios were they were they wrapped into that one book or were they all separate products? So the book settings. Um, yeah, yeah. So that's a that's a great question. The book has four playsets in it. Got it. And that and that like I said, this is 130 pages, and we get into the playsets uh, around page 60. So about 60 pages of rules, you know, followed by another 70 pages of, of just the play sets. Interesting. Cool. Um, and then what happened is I think they made a second book, a companion book that had more play sets and, a, you know, more thoughts and blah, blah, blah about the game. And then um, a lot of people made play sets. So it'd be, it'd be, because it's an indie game, right, it was kind of a it very, comes from a very indie place. A lot of people just kind of made their own playsets and then would, would publish them as PDF, usually free, right? They would just stick them up on the internet. So if you search cool. for, just do a Google search for Fiasco RPG playsets, you'll find a lot. There are a lot of them. Cool. In fact, I don't think I've ever played one of the ones straight out of the book, now that I say that out loud. I oh, think really? I've only ever played playsets that I've downloaded off the internet. I think the one that you and I recorded was like a, a, a band one, like like right? We were in a I think we were in a Fiasco rock band. A modern, yes. Yeah, a modern rock band. Um there's another place that I've yet to play that I'm dying to play, which is Warhammer. It's just you know, War <laughs> Warhammer okay. Fantasy, okay. which is a Great. perfect setting, I think, for Fiasco. I think when we when we live played it, I think you pitched us like three different options for settings, and I think I jumped at the rock band one. I was like, that's the one. <laughs> uh, so, so here's the new box set. This, this uh, came out last May. Uh, they, it was done on Kickstarter. Um, and the, in the Kickstarter video, they mentioned it being like, oh, wait, I'm sorry, I'm not holding it in print. There we go. Um, uh, they mentioned uh, it being the 10-year anniversary. So 10 years later, they're, they're refining the game and making a new version and blah, blah, blah. But if you watch the Kickstarter video, they definitely talk a lot about how they really want the Kickstarter to go wide, which, of course, anyone running a Kickstarter wants their Kickstarter to go wide. But how that they've really made an effort to make this approachable and that, and that they want you to tell not just your RPG friends, but your family members and anybody who likes board games. They're clearly, they were clearly trying to kind of mainstreamify this game. One thing I noticed there is like there was a moment when I, I looked at the box and I'm like it doesn't say role playing game anywhere on it. Like previously, it was pretty. It was clearly marketed as you're, you're role playing, and this doesn't have role playing on the box, to my understanding. You're you're absolutely right. I mean, the the, the cover of the box just says a game, a game about powerful ambition right. and poor impulse control. Uh, if I read the right. text on the back on the back here, it says. Fiasco is an award winning storytelling game inspired by cinematic tales of small time capers gone disastrously wrong. 
So it's a storytelling game, but the role-playing game, the word role-playing game does not appear here. They also tell me it's going to take two hours, which, frankly, most most board games, let's be honest, most board games way underestimate the amount of time on the back of the box. Um, but I would That's say three. Three hours is, is a reasonable amount of time to play this game in. And we played it in, we played it in two, right? Is that what we did before? Did we? Did we make it done in two? Interesting. I don't know. Someone look up the duration of season, <laughs> season two, episode 50. That's fantastic. <laughs> Um, so here's, here's what you get in this box set. You get the rule booklet, which is this tiny 24 page booklet, which has got a lot of space devoted to art and, and the red boxes are generally things like, you know, like you remember in the old uh, D and D books of like, you know, scripty, here's an example of play. So not, you know, like definitely very, very streamlined, very feels very board game-ish. I've seen board gamers with longer rules than that. This cute, tiny little board, which is just a place to put some of the cards. Oh, weird. Yep. Yep. You've got your little, these are your little, like, you know, summary of the rules card to put in front of players so they remember how the hell to do it. And then, and then some decks of cards. Now, now it didn't come with all of these. It it comes with the engine deck, which is, which you have to use in every game. And then it comes with a separate deck for each playset. And the box, I think, came with two playsets. And then they sell as, a, as expansions sets of two additional playsets. So you can see I bought it. Actually, it must have come with three playsets because uh, there's an odd number in here. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah, it came with three playsets. And then I bought a couple expansions. Interesting. Including, here you go. Was the box, right? One of the playsets. Here the box is mostly Dragon empty? Slayer's playset. Oh, great. Oh, now I want to play that. I mean, that's it, right? These are these are decks of cards. Okay. They're just kind of okay. loaded in here on the side. Get a mouse deck card, right? It's just like like a pretty much poker sized deck of cards. And that's, that's you know, it's funny because it for, for some reason that's really um, uh, jamming my uh, memory of like an Atari console system with cartridge based cartridge based stuff I that th- I had to stack up in a. Cl- it looks just like I always think it. I always think it looks kind of like remember. When you had a lot of audio cassettes and you bought the little like briefcasey thing to put your audio cassettes in mm-hmm. to shove into your car. That's, that's what yep, yep, yep. Yeah. Yep. And do you remember that? Then you're old like me. <laughs> <laughs> do you no, still have what I'm that? talking about? <laughs> um, but, no, do not have that. <laughs> um, that you asked myself. But, anyway, but, but yeah, Backwiss is, really. is helpfully reminding us. Um, uh, what the uh, what our duration was? Uh, so when we played uh, Fat Fiasco, Bacchus is reminding us that we got it in at two hours and twelve minutes. There you go. There you go. So conceivably playable in two hours. That's great. Thank you for that reminder. Maybe we were intentionally trying to make it a two-hour game, possibly. Um. Anyway, uh, ad. Uh, right. Every every board game comes with a with a with a color ad in it, right? But the ad specifically is for the online Roll Twenty version. And which you asked me, does is there an online yes, version? Yes, there is totally yes. an online version via Roll Twenty. Okay, okay, interesting, yeah. interesting. So it simulates oh, all and, the, and then, the cards that they have now. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and in okay. fact, if you go onto Roll Twenty and you look it up, not only do they sell the base set, um, they they then also sell expansion playsets in, individually. Okay. So it's just you know, a virtual version of buying exactly what I've got here next to me 
physical space. Fascinating. Okay. Yep. Here, here's your here's on oh, the back of this ad is 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 trying to sell me on some of the additional playsets. The playsets, the expansion playsets come in packs of two. You get two oh, extra playsets. Okay. Interesting. So does that box so, initially come mostly empty as a storage place for expansions later, or yeah, Got yeah. It. okay. I don't know if that's the intention. That's certainly what I did with it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Probably, probably the intention. The decks of cards are sure do fit in there nice and neat. Cool, cool. Um, uh, we we like we like clever package. We like clever packaging and storage options. Yeah, yeah. So. Right, so the, so the interesting thing is here, basically what they've done is they've taken a game that included dice and a lot of tables, and they've boiled that down into cards. And that's, I mean, that seems like an obvious optimization to me, right? Like, uh, yes, you, when you want a, a, a selection of a random element from a list of possible choices, your options are roll dice on a table or select a card from a deck. Um, it really does help streamline the game, though, frankly, I find. It okay. does okay. speed up that initial setup component. Um, it's I, something I really enjoy. I mean, there, there are, I guess, folks who know the stuff that I make are not going to be surprised here. My, my game, Fearful Ends, also includes cards. Um, is also about a game about failure. So there's, there's definitely some, uh, <laughs> <laughs> some corollaries here. But um, so the interesting thing is, um, you deal out these cards. Um, so rather in the beginning, usually in the beginning of a normal of a fiasco game using the old book version, um, what you do is you roll this big pool of dice and you kind of pass the table around and each person would say, okay, I want this element from this table and they would consume one of the dice. And the interesting thing is th what that did is it kind of reduced your number of options because maybe there's a cool thing at number four on this table, but like we're out of fours on the table. So you, on the physical table, so you can't use, can't do that one anymore. Um, with the card version, you just deal out the whole deck of cards, and everybody's sitting there with a hand, a deck, a handful of cards in in their in their hand, and those are their options. And the nice thing is, it's in their face, and they have time to like kind of parse it and look at it. They have less options, frankly, than they would have had if they had been past a whole giant table. Right? There's less. Yeah, not real. Maybe less. Op I guess I think there is ultimately less total options, but also their view of the number of options is very limited, right? So that they're not overwhelmed by choice. And if it comes around your turn and you have to play a relationship card and you've only got three or four in your hand, well, there you go. Interesting. Interesting. As opposed to listening to this giant table. So that is the trade-off they're making, right? Like, so on one hand, it's speeding things up. It's making it easier for new people to parse and get into. On the other hand, you're reducing the uh, complexity, I guess. You're reducing the, the number of choices and how much, you know, stuff exists. Not by a lot. I mean, we keep, but. yeah, I mean, we, and, we, and, all, and we, keep, we do keep coming back to a theme of, you know, more restrictions actually squeezes out more creativity um, in much of the time. And uh, you know, a lot of famous artists will say the same thing that they they want the restrictions of, that force them that box them into moves that they wouldn't have made otherwise. Um, so uh, you know, avoiding the analysis paralysis. And I'm always thinking about the new player experience myself. So um, I respect I respect that a lot of being able to focus people on what their what their options are right then. That seems like a good move to me, honestly. 
And this, and this seems like a classic game design trade-off, right? Like when you want to appeal to your existing audience, you increase complexity to give them more options and more things they can do. And when you want to broaden your audience to a larger group, you reduce complexity so that it becomes more approachable to new people. Yep. Yeah. Um, it's true. So sometimes kinda, as, like, as like the, the referee or the game expert, you can lose. I think it's easy to lose that perspective because I've had I've certainly had conversations with people in the past of like, let's take let's take third edition D&D, for an example. And people say, oh, I can make a third edition character in five minutes. And I'm like, I have had new players take two hours or, or a week. Right. right. That is not you, you are you are overlooking all the assumptions that you've got in the back of your head about things that you're not really doing. Um, and, and, and I, I really like, I mean, you're talking to, you were talking to me right before the show, actually, I really like always having a couple new players in the game actually to touch base on how it's working for them and to see it through fresh eyes. So I think that's really an important thing to, to, to touch base on every, every now and then. Yeah. 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 I agree. Totally agree. Now we can, we can dig more into specifically fiasco and what they've changed here but i thought it was also interesting to kind of draw parallels here to like that process of taking a game that is very niche and adapting it yeah. for a broader audience because let's uh, let's face it that happened to D D in between say 1978 mm -hmm. and 1981 right and you see the same things right you see it going into a box you see the rules being simplified you see it being uh released in a in a broader more accessible way I think is fascinating. That's, that's my intro yeah. to D and D story. Is that my dad bought my mom one of the box sets because she likes this dragon and wizard stuff? He had no idea what the heck he was buying. Yep, yep. I see that, and it's interesting that, like, like to me, I feel that in D and D's evolution, as we're going to talk about that, the interesting thing was in its in its hobbyist indie DIY state, there were lots and lots of references to stuff outside itself. So the original mm -hmm. D&D books are, they're directly talking about Tolkien. They're explicitly talking about it in multiple cases and Conan and Fafford and the Grey Mouser and what other, you know, books and games you should get. You should get Outdoor Survival, of course, that we're all a big fan of. In fact, you have to get it. And 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 maybe uh, Fight in the Skies, the World War One biplane game is is getting used. And a whole, a, whole a whole bunch of other stuff is possibly getting used outside it. And then as the thing evolves from, you know, referencing all these other cultural elements, it becomes, it's just talking about itself. And, and all those outside references kind of get snipped off. Um, the thing I can see here for Fiasco is that in the book form, it's assuming you've got dice, right? It's assuming you're a gamer. It's assuming you've yeah. got a collection of dice already. You go get that and use that with this game. And as this evolves, it's kind of wrapping the thing up into its own product where we're, we're supplying everything that you need for the game. Yeah. Yep. I think, I, I mean, the interesting thing is, as you were saying that, what struck me is not only the dice, but the references to external pop culture, right? If I look mm -hmm. at the back mm -hmm. of my book here, the first line is Fiasco is a game inspired by films like Blood Simple Fargo and A Simple Plan. And those titles of films are bold right on the back yep. of the box. Yep. Yep. If I, if I look, sorry, at the back of the book, if I look at the box, yep. The new box version, Fiasco is an award-winning storytelling game inspired by cinematic tales of small-time capers gone disastrously wrong. Doesn't give names of specific movies. Mm -hmm. Those are not mm -hmm. here. Mm -hmm. Yep, interesting. Yep, interesting. 
Yeah. It's interesting how that, how that moved. And, and I mean, you've, I mean, many of us have had to deal with that, right? So many uh, fantasy role-playing game systems, and I'm talking, you know, possibly decades ago, started out as Dungeons and Dragons house rules. And then, mm-hmm. you know, that's how, that's really how they were used initially. And then as they became a full-blown product, they had to remove all those connections. Um, you, you've had to do that at least, or you've had to do that with at least one adventure that ref, which was fantastic. One of my favorite experiences of all time that specifically referenced a particular, uh, uh, property, right. And then if you mm-hmm. think about mm-hmm. making that available to more than just like me and our close circle of friends, you have to think about shaving off all the serial numbers and all that stuff. Um, which on the one hand kind of slightly hurts a little bit. But yeah. uh, if you're going to get it to a wider audience, I guess you need to do that. I, I agree. I agree. Yeah. And that's and it's funny when you get into that realm of homage or, or parody in this case, mm-hmm. where you're like, well, it's funny because I'm referencing this specific thing that we all remember. But like maybe if I'm going to sell this product, I shouldn't really mention it by name. Um, it, you know, one of the fiasco play sets I have here. Uh, uh, this one is called The Hasty and the Hateful. Um, and it's specifically about um, uh, people who are uh, like to do illegal car races, right? So, oh, great. So okay, they up their great, cars great. and they're, right? So it's The Hasty and the Hateful. <laughs> it's definitely not The Fast <laughs> and the Furious. It's The Hasty and the yeah, Hateful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, 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 right. <laughs> <laughs> So I, I, I believe, I'm told that our that our friends Max and Lauren are huge fans of um, uh, th- things like the Fast and the Furious. Actually, so perhaps that's the next version of Fiasco we should play. I, 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 I rarely, I rarely get together with Max that for some reason he isn't talking about some one of the Fast and Furious movies. Honestly, <laughs> I, don't if, I don't know if that's ever happened to you, Paul. It, uh, actually, it hasn't. Uh, I've not it heard hasn't? a lot of Fast and Furious forever, but maybe they just go over my head because I don't really know the Fast and the Furious. I don't know. I feel like this, they're always trying to persuade we... somebody to start watching the Fast and the Furious series, of which there's like which is... 25 films now. Yeah, yeah. I wonder. I wonder if we did play that game with them. Would you know? Would we get the jokes? Like, I don't. They, they would probably be be making references left, right, and center, and I'd be like, no, yes. <laughs> I probably wouldn't. I probably yeah, yeah. I don't know. <laughs> so um, now it's interesting that with 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 D and D, if we think about that evolution, because in some ways it went in, in, in some ways it went in the opposite direction actually. Because of course, uh, the very first version of D and D was in a box set uh, with dice, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and uh, that you know evolved later it, it, to become yeah yeah. The white box didn't right? have dice, did it? Did the white box have dice? Pretty sure it did. Not. I'm pretty sure it did. Did it really? I'm pretty hmm. sure it did. Didn't it? Okay. Right? I have no idea. Did it? My white box certainly didn't come <laughs> with dice in it. But, uh, you know, it was bought off uh, eBay. Well, she, you got it secondhand, right? I, I assume. So, yeah. view, okay, viewers, help us out. Did the, did the, did the, uh, did the original D&D white box come with, come with dice initially? Eh? I thought that was something that I mean, set apart. I mean, certainly we we know the the story of how the first basic set like they ran out of dice and they had to like mm-hmm. you know do these cardboard chits that you were supposed to put in a cup. Yeah, that's how I played and D&D I certainly for a year. I've bought secondhand basic sets that still have the original dice in there and the crayon. So 
that that's a thing. I didn't yeah. realize the uh, that okay. OD&D actually had dice in it. That is fascinating. Was it a full set? Maybe I'm wrong. Or was it just a 20 okay. and a Maybe, 6? I could just be wrong. So so permanent camper in the chat is is casting the vote of, of he thought it wasn't until the the uh, the Dr. Holmes basic set. So I could I could be right. I could be misremembering my my history. Of course, again, I I didn't get that box set until very very, very late. I went, you know, I went 30 years of playing D&D without having that. Um, so, so, anyway, so my point is D&D uh, uh, started in a box and then uh, evolved to hardcover books and made the first ever role-playing hardcover books, uh, partly to get into bookstores. And then as Paul was saying earlier, um, that advanced Dungeons and Dragons, then uh, J. Eric Holmes uh, made the first ever D&D basic set that switched back to a box with dice, we all agree that had dice, with an introductory module uh, to get that into gaming stores and something you might you know, buy for kids uh, for, for their birthday or Christmas or something like that. Um, and here is uh, Fiasco making the same move from book version uh, to boxed form. And maybe that's something that uh, maybe a larger audience recognizes is this, what's a, this is what a game looks like maybe. Hmm. Hmm. I mean, there is definitely some some effort going on here in Fiasco box set to look and feel like a board game. It has a board yeah. for crying out loud, which yeah. frankly yeah. is a little silly, right? This board just has okay. places to put three face down decks of cards and the let's not okay. card. By the way, that's an interesting addition. The let's not card. There's it comes with two let's not cards, which is the X card. Got it. The X card that they yep. okay. formalized. Yep. Okay. And then, and then just, you know, some text on the side that is, you know, hopeful. I mean, frankly, I think it's probably the exact same text that's on the little uh, player health card. Um, you know, more okay, I, I like them renaming the X card, let's not. Um, you know, I, I am a little bit hesitant about the X card technology. And again, I feel that it's, and, and part of my criticism is it feels very cryptic, right? It, it, it's, it's, mm. the, it's got these, code, these encoded code words that doesn't really mean anything unless you're already an expert gamer. And you have to, you have to learn this, you know, it's, it's kind of like being in a, a cult with its own, you know, term, you know, its own vocabulary that you need to learn. Let's not. I mean, I think that's pretty obvious what that means, right? That, 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 that feels not intimidating. It's, it's like, I get it. Let's not do that. Yeah, yeah. It's, it, it is a good rebranding. Let's not. I would, I would steal yeah. this card out of this box set and use it instead I, of the X card. Let's not. I think I agree with that. <laughs> I think that's a, I, I like that move a lot, actually. It's good. It's good. Also, they made it yellow, like a like a soccer yellow card, like you're like like I'm familiar with getting a lot. That's funny. Um, well, admittedly, there's positive and negative results, oh. right? Uh, in the in, in fiasco, there's there's light and dark colored dice. Um, you're supposed to have two different colors of right. dice, and one is one is positive and one is negative. And when somebody's scene ends, you're supposed to give them a die based on whether the scene went positively or negatively for that for that character. Uh, those have been replaced with positive and negative cards. Uh, which, yep. interestingly, why is the positive card blue instead of green? Not sure. But, you know, they're clearly, they've, they've run out of colors. So that's, that's why I think you get the yellow. Let's not. Cool. Hmm. Cool. 
So my 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 the the hard question that I was going to ask, right, is um, you know we we like dice. I'm comfortable with dice. It seems elegant. It seems efficient. They're small. They they get what you need to be done. They're what I'm comfortable with, obviously. Some people like I always used to. Th I, at one point, I thought that I had a lot of dice. I have a separate complete set for every color in the rainbow so I can hand them out to players or use them for a bunch of different monsters or whatever, which I used to think was a lot of dice. And in the modern era, I find that I'm kind of a piker on that. There are people that are collecting dice, selling dice, are, are much more enthusiastic about dice ownership itself and have much larger collections than I have. Um, so dice are great. So my So my hard question is, is is getting rid of the dice really helping the game or is it a, a money grab is it a money grab that now you need these custom decks that can't be used for anything except fiasco and we have a product that we can sell more physical decks and we can sell more add-ons on roll 20. is it is it really helping the game i don't think it, i wouldn't call it a money grab so um the decks of cards for the scenario for the for the playsets, to me, are more of the analog of your D&D modules, right? They are the content that you are playing the game with. So, like, I feel like, you know, other RPGs already have this in as much as they sell modules. That's, that's what the decks are to me. Um, and I think that it is streamlining play and making it more approachable to new people because it's removing a layer of abstraction. I don't have to look at a die and note the number and then cross-reference that with a table, maybe which I don't even have. I have to, hey, can you pass me the tables? Let me look, right? Like, it's removing a lot of that and just being like, there is text on a card in my hand, done. So it definitely streamlines play. Um, and what does it lose? Uh, it loses a couple of things. It, there is a tactile enjoyment from rolling dice, right? Like, that's, mm -hmm. you know, especially mm -hmm. when the game involves, there's a big pool of dice, basically a four... Four d sixes per player, and the first thing you do in the game is you roll them all. Like so, that's you know, <laughs> that's satisfying. Over the course of the game, you're collecting dice, you're being assigned positive and negative dice, and there's a point at the end where you have to roll them, right? So there's a kind of a gambler feeling in that moment, which is lost in the in the card version. I would also say another interesting thing that the that the new version loses, which again, I don't think these are huge strikes against it. I'm not I'm not going to not play the new version because of this stuff. In fact. I probably am going to play the new version because it's easier to explain to new people. Five people have never played at the table. Great, let's play with the cards because that's going to be easier. Um, but something that is lost ultimately is a bit of the groupthink. I think that, like in the early, the first thing you have to do when you play Fiasco is you go around the table several times, introducing random elements into the into the game to, to kind of kick off the game. We're adding relationships. We're adding locations. We're adding objects. We're adding needs, and. Um, and and the way I've seen it played, the way I enjoy it most is uh, the way our friend uh, Petra runs it. Is she puts out big butcher paper on the table and a bunch of um, uh, oh. sharpies, and as things get added to the game, you literally just write on the table. This thing is now in the game, and that's really satisfying. That's very gratifying. I think just draw on the table. Um. So. Uh, so, but anyway, my point being that, like, there's a whole bunch of dice, and one of the things you're going to note is, like, ooh, not a lot of twos, right? Or, or oh, you know, we've, we've got, like, a whole pile of fives and only two fours, right? So it's something like that. Yeah. So you start to realize immediately what's scarce and what's abundant. 
And then you're passing the tables around so everybody's kind of looking at them. And so there's some amount of chatter and cross conversations and groupthink going on there of like, oh, this, this sounds, oh, I'd like this, or maybe this will go into the game. And that's gone when it's just, okay, it's your turn, play a relationship card. I can't right. see what cards are in your hands. It's up to you to introduce. Got it. Got it. Let me just throw up a, um, a comment from a permanent camper who is kind of agreeing with, um, you know, it's it's not all entirely upside. So permanent camper saying a good point about the need for the custom cards. Uh, same problem I had with the Marvel superheroes card game. Great idea and a good mechanic, but relying on that specific deck. And if you lose some card too, then that's bad. Um, yeah. And I, mean, I and, you know, like me, I never actually played that Marvel superheroes card based game. I always played, you know, the, the earlier face rip that was uh, dice and table based. Right. Seems to be your, your basic two options. And and let's 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 you know the other interesting thing, right, is that this, um, it's brilliant, I think, to sell the game this way, right? Because from a, from a game developer perspective, yeah. now I can just produce new decks of cards. Expansions are incredibly easy to come by. This is how we distribute, right? This is how we add on and yeah. sell to our existing yeah. community. It's great. On the other hand, if you go back and look at its birth in kind of the indie game dev scene, a lot of people were producing these play sets for free, right? There was a lot more right. creativity exactly. in the broader yeah. um, community of people who liked Fiasco. And if I wanted to sit down and play a Fiasco game, First thing I was going to do is go to a website and look at this giant list of playsets and see which one grabbed my my you know interest. Right now I'm now right. I'm reduced to like the seven decks of cards I own. Yeah, yeah, that is what one that's, of the things about I, about dice is that it it does open up the the hobbyist create you can create your own table very easily. Right, manufacturing a, a deck of cards or some other or a spinner or some other kind of product like that that's more difficult. Um, but if you're if you're using dice, then it's really easy. You just make up a, a, a word document with a new table. Um, that no, kind of opens up that hobbyist aspect. Awesome, awesome. Let me let me talk about this a little bit because this is, I'm going to dig a little bit more deeply into here. I'm just grabbing a random playset here out of my um, out of out. Of, out of, so this is the uh, what is this in the weeds? This is about being in a restaurant. So we have like relationship cards that are like uh, friends, breakfast shift server buddies, and uh, an object, which is a uh, chef's personal knife set. Okay. There's also in here, find them, um, some blank ones. So they give you, Got it. hey, you can write in, you know, go get your Sharpie, drop in, you know, customize this a little bit. Not a lot. There's one blank one per guard type in here, blank cards. The other thing I'll add is, so every playset usually has that, four blank cards in it. There's also, I've seen online, you can buy a deck of entirely blank cards. Oh, okay. Right, so they're, yeah. they're clearly trying yeah. to leave that door open for the people who want to hack together their own playset. Now you're now they're going to you know, sell you the deck of blank cards. <laughs> okay, so yeah, okay. Can... now, now yeah. that, that, at, at first blush, that seems, that seems odd, but... I have had a bunch of other games. I have had a bunch of other games, like uh, the Dungeon Board game, right? Um, mm -hmm. or, or, or or other things that like use chits, where I've wanted to add something, right? I've specific, like, yeah, I've got a new idea for a new token or a new card. I wanted to add it, but if I if I hand make it, it's going to stick out in the deck, 
right? It's going to be really obvious that this is Dan's handmade version. It doesn't look like the other things on the other side. And I would actually totally want a thing that on the face downside looks like the rest of it. So you can't detect that. That I totally see that actually. Let me ask you though, what do you think about, so given that the playset deck is a separate deck, it's got its own back. Uh-huh. Oh, yeah, I got another kind of fun thing to tell you about that. But anyway, so it's a separate deck, separate from the main engine deck, and it gets shuffled and dealt out. So what do you think about the idea of having a playset deck that is entirely blanks and selling that? Because at that, Maybe, point, that, might, that might be the... Right, that might be the weakest option. Uh, so yeah. If you're going to fold stuff into the relationships or the, or the objects or something... That, that might, admittedly, that might be possibly the weakest option. Can you see, is that, do you think that's a good idea? I mean, I think it's clever and, and, yeah. and there's some, like, I like the idea of being able to build my own playset, but at some point, you know, I'm going to, if I really want to do that a lot, at some point I'm going to be like, can I just get index cards? Like, why, why do I need your special blank cards? Eh? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, right? I, I agree. If you're, if you're doing, if you're doing a hundred percent overhaul, then obviously you don't need it. My my use case that I've been frustrated with in the past, if I want to add a couple things into an existing deck of something, um, yeah, I see that. So, so here's here's I'm just going to show again. Here's here's some of the cards from from a playset, right? And then you're going to sit there with this Great. hand of cards. I got a bunch of objects and locations and relationships. The other clever thing that they do is on the backs of all the cards are names. Oh. Uh, usually, I think. Uh, uh, no, it's the same. So some of them are some of them are clearly first names. I got Charlie here, Omer. Uh-huh. Some of them are last names. Here's Smith. Um, and the idea being that uh, when you need to name your character or a random NPC who shows up in the middle mm-hmm. of the game, you got a stack of names right here next to you because you have all these cards you didn't play. Neat, neat. You know, right? I'm realizing something for the first time. So here's here's a, here's something that Ooh, I, that I'm Kim I, Smith. <laughs> There you go. Go on. Sorry. So, the, so, so I'm realizing something that I wouldn't have I wouldn't have been able to observe when we actually played it, and that's how closely related this is to traditions from improvisational comedy, improv improv theater. Mm. Um, and you know, it, it was a number of weeks back that we interviewed Karen Twelves about her book Improv for Gamers, and I'm personally still uh, digesting and using uh, some of that stuff myself. You get to the end of that book, right? You get to the end of Improv for Gamers. And the very last exercises, you know, now you can do a whole scene. You can you can do a whole montage scene with a troop that you've developed through this. And remember, basically, as you step into the scene, four things. You want four things in good improv theater. Number one, uh, interesting dynamic characters, right? And you just pointed to us to the names that make a character specific when you need to. Number two, mm-hmm. deep, uh, meaningful relationships, right? Things that connect the characters to other characters. And you'd have, that's one of the main decks there. Three, uh, concrete, uh, visceral object work, right? So one of the things you practice frequently in improv is like, let's work on our fake, you know, 3D objects. And here's how I carry a phone. And here's how I would speak into a speaker on a ship or kind of things like that, right? And uh, number four, uh, 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 edit on good beats. I think it's the four things that improv for gamers actually concludes with, and those are those are the four uh, pillars that Fiasco's built on. Basically, I wouldn't I wouldn't have realized that uh, a couple of years back, but that's that's exactly where that stuff comes from. That is fascinating. I, I would I would I'd be very curious. I would love to talk to Jason Morningstar and ask, like, how much improv training did you do before developing Fiasco? Because yeah. you're right, it is 
kind of kind of improv comedy the role playing game. Yeah, and of course, Jason is one of the many contributors to Improv for Gamers, actually. So, um, so Karen, you know, Karen got at least a little bit of input from him on on that on her on her book. Fascinating. Yeah. Cool. Cool. Mm-hmm. Very cool. So let's talk a little bit. So in our last in our last uh, fifteen minutes or so, let's talk about th- things that maybe we could use this evolution in our D and D games. And, um, you know, among the, the things that, you know, Paul pointed out, he tends to, you know, Paul likes, likes cards. So he's, he's a good customer for this. And your uh, Fearful Ends game uh, that you're working on is, you know, started with mental trauma mechanics uh, for yeah. that could be added on to other role playing games that you turned into, into cards. Uh, I myself... Uh, have have a have a D and D product called Book of Spells, which basically has the original D and D magic user spells um, uh, uh, tightened up, uh, shortened, uh, made into a product that you don't need the entire original D and D box set for. I can just hand it out to players, and I like my little book a lot. Uh, wizards are supposed to be leafing through paper books, so I actually like I like players, you know, wizard players at my table leafing through books in an echo of what their characters are doing. Now, Paul took that. Took book of spells and turn it into cards, turn it into a card deck, which I which I thought was a which truthfully I thought was a massive violation. And I was like, how how dare you, how dare you take my idea and turn it into cards? We're gonna we're we'll sure we'll we'll get some we'll hand it out to players, but obviously they're gonna prefer the book. And I was wildly wrong. And every time we've ever <laughs> given players at our tables the option, they always much prefer the cards. They, they, they love it, and it, it reduces what they're looking at. And when they cast a spell on another character, they can just hand the card to the fighter character that just got buffed so they know what's happening. And the, the cards were, much, were, were greatly favored compared to the original book version. So yep. what, other, what other things could we do with classic D&D um, to get away from, from tables that would... It will well, streamline the game more. I've, uh, I've, I, have, I have several ideas here, Dan. Things that I've actually tried and used in, in games. Okay. Um, okay. You know, I have, when I was running uh, a lot of basic D&D, there was a time when I would print out uh, potential hirelings on cards. Um, okay. and, and, and basically, I would have a deck of hirelings. And when the players went to town and said, we want to hire, you know, we want to see who's available, I would maybe roll a die to say, like, a d6 to see how many were available and draw that many cards. Here are the hirelings who are available. And they would have to be fully statted out with equipment, spells chosen, um, and, and names, alignments, right? And then I could just immediately start role-playing them and saying, like, okay, well, here's, here's the people who are hanging out at the bar. And I'd start talking about them, and I and I wouldn't, you know, tell them, you know, that there's, uh, you know, a fine thurgist is willing to join your party uh, for, for three shares, <laughs> or <laughs> or a fine robber, a fine robber a fine is willing robber. to join your party fine for robber. two shares. Mm-hmm. <laughs> One of the fun things is then I could even like I could even get vague about the class, frankly. I would say like, well, there's there's a yeah. guy in leather armor with a longsword at his at his side. He wants to join your group. Is he a thief? Is he a fighter? I don't know. He's a guy in leather armor with the, with a longsword, um, but that was super helpful, and especially like for names. Like I love the use of names and fiasco on the backs. That they're like just like why not? You got you got a deck of cards. Might as well put some names on the backs. Yeah. Um, yeah. So being able to have names, you know, NPCs with names. Um, I think you've done this too, haven't you? Have you printed hireling cards? 
I did, uh, I did, and I was burning through them so fast that I, per I actually did revert to uh, paper tables because I found it easier to spit out an addition, you know, one more letter-sized page rather than go through the process of formatting them and and cutting them up or stuff like that. So I've I've gone back and forth um, on that but, one a little but bit. That is. Um, I would assume you could do this with a fifth edition character if you're very careful, but it certainly works very well for old school D and D because there's you know they're so small they easily fit on something that's index card sized. Yeah, yeah. Uh, now, let me throw up uh, so an idea that uh, that William had um, uh, quite a while ago actually. Um, so William was saying um, I have often wanted to figure out a way to use cards in D and D character creation, player character creation, um, to quickly deal out starting characters. Um, and that's and and see, I am really close to that myself. In fact, when I think about running uh, D and D online, I I you know, and think about how do you abbreviate the process of uh, rolling and uh, picking race and picking class and and I think we all agree that uh, picking equipment uh, classically is one of the more time-consuming things. Um, I, I've also thought about just having a big stack of player characters and say, "You tell me, uh, you tell me what race and class you want. Uh, here you go. Here's here's one of those completely statted out. Let's get started." Again, particularly particularly for uh, for brand new players. And I, I am starting to think that you do need possibly at least two tracks of absolutely brand new player, just bam, here's the pre-made character. You know, more advanced expert player, give them a whole, you know, give them more bells and whistles and the ability to fine tune their character. Um, so I, I agree with William. I'm really close to doing that myself in my future games. Awesome. Yeah, I can see that. I, I seem to remember that BJ used to do that or did that a couple of times at uh, Helgacon where he had like starting equipment cards that you yes. could yes, yes. character generation, right? Yeah, I'm yeah. not imagining that, right? Yeah. yeah. You're you're right. No, I remember that very well because, you know, uh BJ super super creative, uh usually usually, you know, uh uh not uh as uh mathematically um precise as as i usually do stuff so i could i usually would spot what was broken about it and just take a whole bunch of whatever was broken <laughs> sorry bj <laughs> but i've done that more than once and you know oh, what it's such a good referee right and then he would modify it on the fly and he should he's like okay no the, the robots don't work like that anymore we're gonna we're gonna do something different here well, yeah, that's, that's the proper response to me. Good job. <laughs> that's amazing. Um, before we run out of time, I got, I got two other examples. One which you can see online, I'm realizing. If you go and watch the live stream of my birthday game, the first actual play that you and I ever live streamed, yes. um, I used decks of cards for rumor tables. And if you remember, mm -hmm. I had two of them. I had one that was just rumors that you could hear in the tavern. And so if you went to the tavern and spent a certain amount of money just buying people drinks and whatnot, you could draw a rumor card. And then the other one was, um, in that particular scenario, there was uh, this known uh, elemental cult, this evil elemental cult that was operating out of the forest nearby. And I uh, had it that um, one, of, one of the cultists had been captured and was in the dungeons of the Baron. And if you bribed the... Um, uh, the guards, you could get in there and listen in on his uh, interrogation. 
And so you could pay some money to, to, to bribe your way into listening on the interrogation and, and draw from the, I can't remember what I called it, something like ravings of the... That's <laughs> yeah. yeah, like what I'm laughing like right now, actually, is, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah it, was, it was pretty funny. And, of course, the, the, I think the players loved it, right? My recollection is you guys, like, it was, it was very I, yeah. eager to get through the entire deck of both of those decks. Like, because you could just, mm -hmm. you could see yeah. at a glance on the table how many were left. You're like, I know there's some gems in there. I know there's some yeah. really good stuff. I want to I wanna know all the things. Uh, yeah, which is nice, works, too, because you don't usually get that from a rumor table. You don't really get the, like, well, how many of the rumors have we seen, right? You're right. You're right, actually. Yeah. And then, and then, and then, do you remember to write it down word for word as the DM saying it? Is something nice to be able to like hold yeah. it in your hand and look at it and be like, I have that note here in my hand permanently. That's actually that's actually a really good point because actually just the the uh, energy at the moment where the the DM relates something and then one of the players, you know, and you you need one you need one or two of these players go. Could you repeat that, please? And I'm going to write it down. Scribble, scribble, scribble. And then what was the next line? Scribble, scribble, scribble. And that's not a great energy beat at the table, honestly. I'm always glad to have that. But I, I myself am torn between getting it down carefully and delaying the delaying the, the play with, with, when there's just like one person transcribing it. So being able to just hand someone the uh, you know mocked up letter or manuscript or rumor uh, abbreviates that and keeps the game running. I will also say it offers an interesting role play uh, opportunity, which I'm not sure existed, which is simply that uh, I say my character goes to the tavern, spends some money listening to rumors. Great. I get to draw a card. I get to go back to the group and say, hey, I was just down at the tavern and you'll never believe what this guy told me. Right. Instead of <laughs> listening point. in to the Great DM spewing yep. it Great out, point. now the player gets to yep. do that. Right. Which is kind of neat. Kind of like, like that. Yep. Yeah, you know, there's a there's a common uh, uh, it, here I am again now. Uh, there's a, there's a common improv exercise, or actually I've se I have seen this performed, whereby you get uh, audience members to write uh, some kind of. They've probably done this on uh, who's lines it anyway. You get audience members to write like a short line or phrase or something like that. Stick it in the performer's pocket, and then halfway through a scene, you got to pull it out and you got to work it into the performance all of a sudden. Um, and, uh, and that's, that's what that suddenly feels like a lot to me. And it's usually, usually it comes off pretty well. That is, yeah. that is, that is, that is a much, that's a much better, uh, moment than the transcribe what the DM said bit. That's a yeah. really good point. I like that a lot. I would, I would use that technique again. I would make a, yeah. a rumor deck. Now you got to That's a thing you got to make custom for each adventure you're running, but, um, yeah. You know, but I feel uh, like I if, I, you, if you, if you focus, like if there, if there's, if there's if there's a particular nugget that an NPC has to deliver, like you know, delivering that in the you know manuscript form, uh, I, all of a sudden that's that seems even stronger to me than it used to. And here's a here's a quick DIY or tip for folks listening in: um, go out to your local Staples or whatever, or or, or office supply store, and get yourself some um, printable business cards. Right, they come in big eight and a half by eleven sheets. They're perforated. You pop them out, and uh, you know a lot of um, <laughs> you know, word processors, Word, whatever, have templates for these. That is a really nice way to quickly generate a you know custom deck of cards or something. Uh, I think that's what I did for those decks. Was I just got some some you know 
custom, um, you know, business cards. It's a nice size. It's a little small. You know, it's not your quite your full poker poker card size, but it's at least they'll be uniform. You don't have to like sit there with a pair of scissors and a, or, or an exacto knife and try to get like this janky deck like that. Actually, sits nice, and you can print it out. Not all, yeah, handwritten. Yeah, it's good. I also started yeah. using uh, labels in my in the last year or so. If, if I have uh, pre-generated uh, characters. Uh, I print a bunch of uh, summary labels about their name and their class and who they are and what kinds of things they can do broadly, and then use that for uh, place cards at the table. Just set it up in front of the player and player, and then me and the other players can see what they're about actually. And um, that worked really nicely with some pre-made labels on index cards for that. Yeah, yeah, that's great. That's great. I, I frequently, right, are... I, my whole life, I've walked into a stationery store and just thought about how can I use this for D and D, basically. I, these these labels and these index yeah. cards and this accounting book, this accounting paper and this logarithmic, yeah. uh, these logarithm yeah. graph graph paper, right? Yeah, that's that absolutely. Every time I walk into Staples, I'm like I'm in the, <laughs> the secondary RPG supply store. Absolutely. Great. Um, okay, Very we're about great. out of time, Dan. Any any final thoughts what? on fiasco on uh, the the you know using cards instead of dice? Um, how does that go by? How does the hour go by RPGs? so fast, Paul? I don't know. That is, that is my question. That is my question. I I am um, uh, you know I, I I warm up to it. it it's it's not a sil it's not a complete silver bullet. Uh, in some ways, um, just you know, just making tables and uh, dice are uh, more flexible when you're at least when you're in the early inventing stage. And then I got to admit, uh, even even if I uh, have my biases, I see players you know working really you know really liking cards, focusing their attention, making the game run faster. Um, and if you can evolve your game to that point, yeah, the the game really does does flow better, honestly. Viewers, I strongly recommend you check out uh, the box set of Fiasco. Um, you can buy this uh, online or at various, you know, probably at your local game store. Uh, yes, you can find it on Amazon. Um, I think that if you go to Bully Pulpit Games uh, website, there's a page about where to buy it from. Uh, they have a they have an online partner. I think that they probably would prefer you to use. Um, check it out. Definitely, definitely recommend it. It's a great game. Um, you know, and, and it may be a nice, frankly, maybe now a nice way to introduce the concept of RPG to your non-RPG playing friends. Uh, I mean, we've discussed that before, and I won't, I won't introduce that whole new topic with one minute to go. Um, <laughs> viewers, if you have any thoughts uh, about uh, other ways to incorporate this to your D&D &D game, what, what other things can we cardify? Uh, how else can we use custom decks of cards to increase, to improve our D&D &D game? Or just thoughts about the you know progression of rpgs from from niche market to uh mainstream uh, let us know drop some comments for us here in the uh comment section of the youtube video we'd love to hear from you and maybe that'll spark some uh some some inspiration for future uh episodes yeah definitely and uh maybe if you're new to the show remember that you can like follow and subscribe to us the wandering dms we are on youtube and twitch and twitter and facebook and GitHub and TikTok. And we do have the handle wandering DMs and all those sites. And you know what? If you subscribe to us on YouTube today, uh, you're gonna be subscriber number 1600. So nice nice round number that we always like. So so, so if, if you haven't subscribed on YouTube, do it right now and, and you'll be number 1600, which we'll give, we'll give you a no prize for. <laughs> <laughs>
apologies. <laughs> Uh, if you prefer to listen to our shows in audio-only <laughs> podcast format, you you can get those podcasts on our website at wanderingdms.com. Uh, our full back catalog of shows is available there. Uh, also, uh, you can find us on various podcast carriers such as Google Podcasts and iTunes, and Spotify, and Stitcher, and Pocket Cast. And I, 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 I try to throw more names in here every time. I, I don't <laughs> okay, there's a lot of them. If you are listening to the show right now on one of those those web, uh, websites, please take a moment, if possible, to rate and review us on that site. That helps other users of that site find our show, and we really appreciate it. Yeah, we really do. And, of course, huge thanks to our patrons who support the Wandering DMs show. If you would like to join them, please visit patreon.com slash wanderingdms. And you'll see our different tiers, discounts on merch, access to a private Discord server, monthly behind-the-scenes stuff that we try to do, and uh, best of all, our after-party chat that we have every Sunday We'll be on Discord in about 10 minutes to continue the live conversation about uh, Fiasco and evolving games from Indie Basics and moving from dice to other uh, other card-based randomizers and stuff like that. And uh, we'll, we'll be both there today, right, Paul? Absolutely. Uh, I will be there. Yeah. I'm sure there's more to talk about. Actually, I have some more thoughts, frankly, on... Um card-based uh, elements to uh, D&D. So uh, I, got, I got some more to talk about, Dan. Uh, cool, cool. If, cool. You're, if you're viewing right now, you know, throw a dollar at the Patreon and come join us. It's a great value. Uh, we have a couple new patrons who just joined, and we, we hope we are going to uh, see some of you uh, in the Discord chat. It's, it's, uh, it's fun. It's a lively chat, and uh, we'd, love, we'd love to hear from you. That'd be great. In addition to that, uh, look for our upcoming shows uh, this week. I'll be back uh, Thursday night, uh, kind of late night, 11 p.m. Eastern time, uh, as I uh, repetitively get spanked at uh, the AD&D Pool of Radiance game. Uh, so if you want to see uh, me get uh, violated over and over again by the rules of first edition D&D, apparently that's what happens Thursday nights now. Uh, but I'm uh, among the great advice that I'm, give, that I'm being given is don't try to fight your way through every single encounter, Dan, uh, when your party is first level, like the 35 hobgoblins uh, with a magic user or the 25 kobolds that all have bows or the three trolls and two ogres that crushed me last time. So maybe this Thursday, I'm gonna start using some, I don't know, some role playing and try to like practice <laughs> some people nicely and see where that leads me uh, because my, uh, my warlord attempt hasn't actually been doing super well. So totally new, st new strategy for Dan on Thursday night. And, you know, Paul just brought up, I'm so glad Paul just brought up uh, the, the birthday game that we ran a couple of years ago. We, we ran 24 hours of, of live D&D. Uh, &D. Uh, Paul's birthday is right around the July 4th holiday, so we usually get together for that. Um, and that particular one, we were running through the uh, Dyson Logos adventure. Um, uh, Dyson's Dell, of course. Had a great time with it. You should totally watch that. So maybe we should do that again uh, this year, Paul. Maybe we should get together for the upcoming 4th of July weekend, and we'll, we'll be gaming, and we'll, we'll play for 24 hours straight, and we'll stream the whole thing. That's, that's, we should do that, right? Is that what we're going to do this weekend? Uh, well, yeah? I, was, I was about to say great idea until we got to the end there. I don't know if I'm up for another 24-hour oh. marathon, but definitely let's get together. Let's play some games, um, and let's put some of it on the internet for our uh, wonderful viewers to watch. Uh, let's do all those things. Okay, I'm excited. All right, well, how, you know, however <laughs> much time it is, I'm excited by that, Paul. So that's probably what you're going to see uh, next Sunday is we'll, Paul and I will actually be together 
uh, possibly some other friends, and uh, doing some kind of gaming thing. I don't know. Maybe we'll play. Maybe we'll be able. Maybe we'll be playing Fiasco possibly or something else. Yeah, we'll we'll find yeah. some stuff for sure. Yeah. Cool, cool. So look for that uh, next week, and I uh, hope you have a good uh, Fourth of July holiday coming up. I uh, hope it's half as much fun as what we're going to do. And don't forget, we are live every Sunday at one p.m. Eastern time, like next week. So please join us then for another thought-provoking discussion. We'll see you then.